Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. When God led his people out of the iron furnace out of Egypt, that great exodus, he brought them through the Red Sea and out into the desert. They were following Moses and they made their way to a mountain, a great massive mountain, Mount Sinai. God told Moses, tell the people, spend two whole days consecrating yourselves because on the third day, I'm coming onto the mountain. Then we read this from Exodus 19. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightning and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. God could have given the law to his people any number of ways, but that's the way he did it. In one of the most terrifying scenes of the Old Testament, matched if it is matched only in some of the great judgments of God, like the fire that had just fallen on Egypt or the fire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah, that was the context in which the law was given. It was so frightening that in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, verse 20, we read, They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. A terrifying sight. Distance was required, even after the people had consecrated them for two whole days. If they touch the mountain, they die. And of course, you know that Moses as the intermediary went up that mountain, terrifying as that was, and came back down with two tablets of stone. These were the Ten Commandments, which encapsulated also the other commands he was given. And all of that together we call the law, or the law of Moses, or the Mosaic law. Why should God give Israel the Mosaic law, this great centerpiece of Judaism? Why should he give it to them in such a terrifying manner? Why did there have to be noises that terrify and sights that terrify a great fire? If you've ever seen a building on fire up close, this is a mountain on fire up close and a trumpet growing louder and louder. And when God speaks, it's in thunder. Why does the law come like that? It was not accidental. It was not only for their instruction to teach them to fear God, but it was actually for our instruction today. The law came down that mountain, and it was a good law. It's not a bad law. It represented the will of God, a will that is good, acceptable, and perfect. The problem is that that law that came down on Sinai, just like the mountain itself, 
is too good, too great for us weak mortals. Anyone who tries to find righteousness by keeping what was etched in those stones in Moses' arms will be crushed by Mount Sinai, will be crushed by the furious judgment of God, not because those laws were bad, but because we're too bad to keep them. The command to stay away from the mountain is a great picture of what happens when you try to get right with God by keeping God's will, by doing good things, by keeping God's law or however you understand God's law. It is like a mountain over there all ablaze, yelling with the voice of thunder and a loud trumpet, do better. Love your neighbor better. Forgive other people every time without hesitation. Honor your parents. Never disrespect them. Be self-controlled. Never give in to gluttony or lust. Say no to your wrong desires every time. Give, be, do better. And there you are standing over there, terrified. And do you do better? No. The mountain offers no help. The mountain just tells you what you already know you ought to be doing but it tells you more forcefully and more clearly. And if you try to go up that mountain to God, you die. You see how that's for our instruction? That's the book of Galatians. To this day, there are millions of people standing far off, trying with all their might to hear what the mountain says, to hear what even their own conscience tells them about what they should be, and to just shape up and do it, hoping that if they work hard enough, They'll somehow make it to the top of the mountain. But Sinai stands there forever, ingrained in the minds of the Jewish people, but also in ours to remind us what Paul has been telling the Galatians in this entire letter, that the Judaizers are wrong, that that law given on Sinai is not meant to save you because you're too weak to keep it. It's a good law, but you're not a good person. You can't keep it. You can't get up the mountain. You can't get right with God by keeping the law. But that, of course, raises this question. If the law can't save you, if you can't keep it as it's being commanded to you, then why do we even have it? It seems useless that God gave it to his people if it only condemns us further. Well, that's the very question that our text addresses today. Why the law if it's not meant to save us? Let's look at this. We're in Galatians 3, and we're starting in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, that's Christ, and it was put in place through angels who were there on the mountain with God by an intermediary, that's Moses, goes between them. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We are seeking the answer to one question today, and it's the beginning of our text. Why then the law? Why the law of Moses? Why was it added when God had already, as Paul said in these previous weeks, already made this promise, this covenant to Abraham that in him and his seed, that's Christ, all the families of the earth, that's us, would be blessed. We could have salvation by faith like Abraham in the seed, just like Abraham had faith. So why, as Paul noted, did 430 years later God add on a law? to guide God's relationship with his people if we already had the promise. The Judaizers said, well, God added the law because that's how you get right with God. That's how you achieve salvation. You have to keep it. Paul says, no, that is not true. So why then the law if it doesn't save us? Christians for now 2,000 years have been wrestling with that question, and we've come to a point for many of us where we say, it seems from Scripture, there are three uses of the law, and not one of them is our salvation. But there are three uses of the law. Two of them are what we could call positive uses of the law, as we'll see. And one of them, which is the main focus of our text today, is really a negative use of the law, which we'll see that as well. So let's look at these three uses of the law because all of them, the two positive, are suggested in our text. And then the one negative is clear. That's the focus of the entire text. So let's start with the positive uses of the law. If the law doesn't save us, why do we have it? There are two positive reasons. These are suggested if you look back in verse 21. So we're going to start in 21. We're going to be here for a while. Don't look at the clock and get worried. I know. But we will come back to the rest of the verses in a little bit. But this is important. Look at verse 21. Paul has just shown in verse 20 that the law differs from the promises, talking about an intermediary. The law had an intermediary. The promises didn't. We'll come back to that. But then he leads into this, verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Paul has been showing how God's great purposes in the world come to us through promises, namely the promises made to Abraham, how those touch us as Christians today, the source of our salvation through those promises. Paul has been downplaying in some sense the law because the Judaizers said you have to keep it to be saved. And he's been saying, no, 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 go back to the promises. It's faith in the promises. But that could lead us to this false conclusion, which is, well, then law means bad, promises, good, faith, good, law, bad. You know why you can't think that? Because of Psalm 119. <laughs> Does the psalmist in Psalm 119 think the law is bad? No. So here Paul says, do you think that God's promises we've been focusing on that's part of God's purpose to bring salvation to the world. But the law, it's a bad thing. Don't think about it. Put it over there. That's the Judaizers thing. And Paul is saying, no, that's not true. Even though we cannot be saved by the law, Paul wants to acknowledge the law is not an accident. God gave the law with a very specific purpose. In our case, we have three specific purposes. And the law is good. 
In fact, he says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. It's so good that if we could really keep it, we would be righteous because it epitomizes righteousness. You might be more familiar with the same argument Paul's making in Romans 7 because there he kind of elucidates it, makes it clearer, if you will. In Romans 7, Paul had asked, making the same argument about faith in Christ, not the law. That's how we get saved. And there he says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? Is it sin? Is it bad? He answers, certainly not. You heard that before? It's in our text. Same in the Greek. ESV has a different wording. I don't know why, but it's the same in the Greek. Certainly not. The law is not bad. And he summarizes his response in Romans 7 like this. The law is holy and the commandment from the law is holy and righteous and good. Law, good. So if you come from a background of legalism and you think law, anything law, anything commandment, any should, any ought, bad, bad, bad. You're wrong. You're wrong. It may have been used wrongly in your case. I'm sorry about that. But Paul is adamant that the law, as a reflection of God's will, it's good, it's good, it's good, it's good. Does it save you? No. But it's good. The problem is actually that the law is too good. It's too good. Can't keep it and be saved. But it's not bad. You have to keep that in your mind because we're going to talk about positive uses of the law. We can only have positive uses of the law because the law is good. Now, here we have to make a digression, and here's where you have to bear with me because it's at this point talking about law that we have to make an aside and talk about what the law is and specifically what is the relationship that we as Christians have with the law. Isn't this a topic that's maybe been confusing to you at times? When somebody comes to you and says, the Old Testament says no tattoos. What are you doing? The Old Testament says certain foods you can't eat. You're eating those foods. What's going on? You don't read your Bible. You don't obey your Bible. You know, there's been experiments where people in a sort of mocking way will take Old Testament commands from the law and try to live them out, stone people, do whatever, and say, see, it's untenable. That is to misunderstand what we're talking about today. But what are we talking about? What are the actual positive uses of the law in your life? How does the law relate to you? How should you read your Old Testament when you open it up in your Bible reading plan and it has commands about sowing two types of seeds in a field? You say, how does that relate to me? We need to take a second to talk about that. So, let's do that. The law of Moses... When you read that law, it's not just the Ten Commandments. It includes the Ten Commandments. There's some 600 commands given in the law of Moses, with the Ten Commandments being a sort of summary, encapsulation, which Jesus narrows down to just two, love God, love your neighbor. But that's what the Ten Commandments are, a sort of summary of the others. But there are a lot of other ones, including diet and how you dress and so forth and so on. Some of the commands in the law of Moses seem rather straightforward in how they apply to us, don't they? Like, you shall not murder. Does anyone object to that being useful for us today? Some of them seem directly to apply to us. Nine of the ten, at least, with a question of the Sabbath one, in the Ten Commandments seem very directly to apply to us today. The New Testament authors pick them up and push them on the Christian and say, this is still applicable to us. 
The issue is that there are many, many, the majority of other laws that do not seem clearly to touch us as Christians, like this one, quote, you shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed, nor shall you wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. And I bet many of you are wearing shirts right now that have two kinds of fibers blended together. You are violating that command. How do we separate out these commands, the ones that seem very moral, Ten Commandments and so on, and the ones that are very detailed but don't seem to apply to us? There have been different attempts. One of the most common ways that this has been wrestled with in the past has been to split the law into three parts. To say that the law had civil, a civil part, a ceremonial part, and a moral part. So, for example, there were some parts of the law of Moses that were mainly civil. They related to the nation of Israel as a theocracy. It's not a democracy. It's a theocracy with God clearly, the monarch clearly at the head. And therefore, some of the laws God gave had to do with how they as a nation functioned. Other of the laws were ceremonial. They had to do with sacrifices and cleansing and priesthood. And then other of the laws are just moral, like you shall not murder. Then people would say, if you break the law into those three parts, obviously the first two parts, the civil and the ceremonial, don't apply to us because we're not the nation Israel in a theocracy, so the civil doesn't apply to us. The ceremonial is focused on sacrifice, which has been fulfilled in Christ, the last sacrifice. So we don't need to do sacrifices and cleansings, and therefore that doesn't directly apply to us. But the moral piece of the law, that third of the law, if you will, still is binding on Christians. Now, that's useful. I do find one issue with that way of thinking, which is the whole law was given as one law. It wasn't given as thirds. And if you artificially break it up that way and say that one third of it is still binding, it does seem to contradict when Paul says, we are not under law. You say, well, Paul, do you mean we're just not under two thirds of the law? We're still bound by one third of the law. Paul's adamant. You are not under the law. The law, one, two, three parts, however you break it up, it's the law, Ten Commandments and everything attached. So if you say we're still bound by a third of it, that can be a little confusing. I think that this is a better way to think about our relationship to the law, and it's this. The law was one expression of God's unchanging will in a unique situation. The unique situation was Israel as a nation in a theocracy in the Old Testament before the time of Christ. But every law, however you divide it up, every single law of the 600 are all a, an expression of who God is and what he likes and doesn't like but it's in a unique context, a unique situation. I think that is a better way to look at it because any part of the law that you look at as a Christian, you can look at it and say, okay, we're not in that situation. We're not a theocracy and we don't have a sacrificial system. We have Christ. And so I'm not under the law given through Moses, praise God, because I'm in a different situation. However, in my situation, do I care about who God is and what he likes and doesn't like? 
what else do I care about? That is what we care about as Christians. That's what we're about. That's what we do. We care about God's will, don't we? And we want to live according to his will. The Old Testament law, therefore, though not binding on us in our situation, is one way that we can find out what God is like and what he likes and doesn't like. It takes some discernment to say what was unique to that situation and what is unchanging through time. So when you hear a command, you shall not murder, that's easy because that applied to that situation and is clearly part of God's unchanging will in our situation. But when you hear a command, don't sow your field with two kinds of seed, that applied to that situation? I've not been sowing any seeds on any fields recently. It doesn't apply to my situation. We're not a theocracy. But I can learn something about God from those commands. Even though I'm not bound by the law, I'm not condemned by the law, I don't have to keep the particulars of the law that were for the nation Israel at that time in that situation. Even though that's true, because that law reflects God's will in some way, I will look at that law and say, what does this teach me about God? And what is there that is part of God's unchanging will also in my situation? Let me just give you an example of this to show you from Scripture how I think this is true. Twice in Paul's letters, Paul quotes this command from the law. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So you got an ox, he's plowing your field, treading out the grain and plowing your field. He's working hard. He's got his yoke, he's working hard. You can't put a muzzle on him in the situation of the Old Testament. You can't put a muzzle on him because if you muzzle him, he can't eat the grain that he's treading on. That's cruel. Okay, that's the command. If you lived in Old Testament times, you couldn't say, what's the principle? You'd have to actually do that. You can't muzzle him. That's from Deuteronomy 25.4, binding in the theocracy of Israel. But let me show you how Paul, in this new situation we find ourselves, the new covenant, let me show you how Paul applies that to us. Here's 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He quotes it and he says this, Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake. Christians, it was written for our sake, he says, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. What he's doing is he's taking that specific detailed command binding in the Old Testament under the law, which the Israelites had to keep to the letter. He's saying, but even when God gave that, was his main concern the oxen? No, there is a bigger principle about who God is and how God thinks in that command so that even though we're not bound by that in our situation, we still love God and want to know how he thinks. So how does God think this way? God thinks that the plowman, like the ox, should plow in hope. That when we labor, there should be hope of benefiting from the labor. And the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And then he applies it like this to Christians. If we, Paul and his companions, have sown spiritual things among you, sharing the gospel with you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? 
That's not what Moses meant when he gave the law. But Paul says the way God thinks, you can see it in the oxen in the law. It applies now for us as Christians, even if we don't have oxen. It's that now if you have Christian laborers, missionaries, these missionaries, like Jesus said, are workers worthy of their wages. So if the missionaries laboring, laboring, it's not that you owe it to them to support them financially, but there's a sense in which God loves fairness and rightness, and he loves for his people to be provided for more than oxen. And so it's right for us to support those who are investing in us spiritually. You see what happened there? In 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes this same text again about the ox not being muzzled and applies it to pastors. That's why there's a justification for paying pastors. So thank you for that. So that we can labor among you. Part of that comes from the command about oxen because it teaches us something about God. It is a principle. We are learning about God by reading the Old Testament. So please, read the Old Testament. Don't say, this doesn't apply to me. Okay, not directly in some parts, but it does because that's your God. Same God. He didn't change. And you want to know him. You want to know what he's like and what he likes. And you do that by looking at the law. But most simply... We Christians are interested in God's will, which is based in God's character, and we can see that by looking through the law of Moses, through the law of Moses to who God is, what he's like, and what he likes. Sometimes, therefore, reading the Old Testament is so easy, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, because that applies then, that applies now. God has always felt that way about every human through all time. Other times, our situation is different. I say all of this, so there's the aside. I say all of this because it's going to help you understand what we talk about now in the law, because Paul's point here is don't think about the law as bad. Think of it as a reflection of God's character, which you love, and his will, which you crave, but you're not under it because the situation's different. Christ fulfilled the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. We're in a new covenant. Situation's different, but same God. So the law is useful for us, us, but it doesn't save us. That's why he says, it's not contrary to the promises of God. You're going to see that. God has positive uses for it. It's not against God's purposes, not promises good, law, bad. They're all working in the same direction. Okay, so there's our aside. You need that background information because now we're going to talk about uses of the law. I want to share with you the two positive uses of the law for you as a Christian The first we call the civil use of the law. If, as we talked about, the Old Testament law is a reflection of God's unchanging character and will, then even civilly in any country, in any nation, when we make laws, we want our laws, if we can, we want them to reflect God in his righteousness. We want them to be laws that he loves, that he approves of because he is righteous. Therefore, there is a kind of civil use of the law where to the degree we are able in our situation, if we can encourage laws in our country to reflect the principles, the principles of who God is and what he likes in the Old Testament, we want to do that. Now, this has unfortunately been done very poorly by some people who want to just take the laws as they are from the Old Testament and impose them on a country. It's never going to work. 
Don't do that. We're not in the same situation. Christ has come. We're not a theocracy. However, if we're looking for God's will, when you look at Old Testament commands about fair balances, there's a principle there that God loves justice. Take that principle, and we want to see that in our own country. Of course, living in the United States, there is debate about the exact spiritual beliefs of our founding fathers, and they were all across the board, truly. But here's something they all had in common. They all were asking this question, what does God want? What is God's will? And that's why the Bible, not just the New, but the Old Testament had a significant bearing on the founding and the constitution and the laws in our country. So we can take Ten Commandments out of courtrooms. There's all that debate. You take the statue of the Ten Commandments out of the court. But we haven't taken the Ten Commandments out of the courts themselves because we have that sort of foundation, even if it's changing. That is the civil use of the law. And in that sense, the law benefits even lost people. Because if our country and our nation enacts laws and justice in keeping with what we see of God in the Old Testament, then it will restrain even unbelievers. Laws are there to restrain even lost people who don't care a thing about God and His will, but the law says, do this thing God doesn't like and you're in trouble, and that will restrain them. So there's a restraining force to the civil use of the law. That's one positive use of the law. Let me give you the other one. This one doesn't require much explanation since we've already done a lot of background. We call it the didactic, the didactic use of the law. That just means the teaching use of the law. And that's exactly what we've already been talking about. This is for us as Christians. When you read in the Old Testament how the Jewish people were commanded to build a parapet, a fence around the roof of their home, you can go home and try to do that, and it's going to be useless except for a roofer, I suppose, so he won't fall off. Nobody walks on your roof, right? But in the Old Testament, in that situation, people did, and so the law required build a fence so people don't fall off your roof. We're in a different situation. You're not bound by having to build a fence on your roof. That's good. It would, it would be useless. But what do you see in that command? That God wants you to love your neighbor which includes looking ahead and saying, how can I look out for the welfare of the safety of someone else? Not by a fence on my roof, but there are other ways. So you then look at that command and you learn about who God is and what God likes from it. And it guides you even as a Christian. Those are the two positive uses of the law. Civil, didactic. Now, since we've spent so much time on that, we should go to the one that this passage is focused mainly on. There is what we can call a negative use of the law. If you look in verse 19, this is his main answer. He says, why then the law? Here's his main answer. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. We'll leave the until for next, the following weeks, because we'll come back. The law had, it was temporary in nature. We'll see that. But his answer is mainly, the law was added not to save you. It was added because of transgressions. It was because people, even given the Abrahamic promises of if you have faith in the seed to come, you will be saved. That was a wonderful promise. Everyone could have been saved through that, but they weren't. Why? Because everyone thought, I don't need that. I'm decently good. I'm decently good. 
I do enough of God's will that if God's reasonable, he will let me into heaven. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not some serial killer out there. Our pride prevents us. Even if God in the promises made to Abraham takes salvation, his own righteousness, and reaches us out right in front of us, says, believe and it's yours. Even in doing that, we say, oh, that's okay. I don't really need that. I've got my own righteousness. I'm not taking handouts from you, God. I've got my own righteousness. I'm doing the best I can. It's good enough. That's why God added the law. God says, you think you're doing good enough? I'm going to make this righteousness look really good to you. Here is a law that tells you how good enough is. Now compare yourself to that and tell me if you're good enough. That's what the law is for. This is a negative use of the law. We call it the evangelical use of the law because it pushes you to the gospel by showing you that you're not good enough. It was added because of transgressions. And if you look down in verse 22, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Here comes the law, Old Testament scripture. Boom! Shows you you are bound by sin. You are imprisoned. You're not doing well. You're doing terribly. You're not living up to the commands of God or his righteousness. Why does that happen? So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It is to push you away from yourself. The law comes in flames on Sinai to shatter your pride, to break you from all self-trust, to show you that you are this and God stands standard is this, and you'll never get there. And it's only at that point with the law coming in. Look at the history of Israel. Can't keep the law, can't keep the law, exile, exile, back from exile, can't keep the law, Jesus. That's the point of the law to show you you can't keep it. You're not good enough. And it's only when you get to that point, your pride broken, that you say, okay, okay, I give up. If I'm not righteous, where can I get righteousness? And you look over and all along this whole time, there's been a hand like this saying, it's been here the whole time. God says, I'll provide righteousness for you through faith like Abraham. But you didn't see it before because you didn't think you needed it before. But the law and its evangelical use strips away all self-hope, throws you toward the commandment. It's Romans 7 puts it this way. Did that which is good, the law, bring death to me? No. It was sin producing death in me through what's good. Here's the purpose. In order that sin might be shown to be sin. Now, I have left to this last one minute the hardest part of this whole text, and I did it on purpose. Sorry. There are more than 300 possible interpretations of Verses 19 and 20, that's not an exaggeration. Someone's counted it. And I'm not going to dive into those, of course, because the essence of what's being said here is clear and lines up with everything we've already said. But look at this, verses 19 and 20. The law, quote, was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Simply meaning when God descended on that fiery mountain, just like when Christ returns, he'll come in flames with angels. They come with him for judgment. This is why we call him the Lord of hosts, because he has hosts of angelic armies around him. That happened on Sinai. And apparently there was some function of the angels where they were involved in the giving of the law. So the law comes through the angels. It comes to an intermediary who's clearly Moses up on the mountain. 
Moses is the go-between who brings the law down. And then verse 20 says, now an intermediary like Moses implies more than one, but God is one. And put most simply, the point is in the promise, the righteousness extended through Abraham, it's God and Abraham, that's it. You want salvation? It's you dealing with God directly. Christ's a mediator, but he is God. You come directly. If you want to be righteous through the law, then think about Sinai. Sinai was over there, don't touch it. And even the law came two degrees of separation through angels, through Moses, down to you, the mountain saying, do better. I think that's the point of that passage. The intermediary Moses only applies to the law. Because in the law at Sinai, you're far away and God is just telling you, do better. And that's right. You might be this morning standing before Sinai trying to do better. It's exhausting. Sorry for you. It's exhausting. Trying to do better. Trying to be better so God can finally welcome you up the mountain. It will never happen. The law, Sinai is there to crush your pride, not to save you. The law is there to tell you you're not good enough. But if you want righteousness, it's right here. Believe on the seed, the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's yours. 